0: All right, well, we are on the home stretch. One more lap, roughly, maybe, I guess, uh, in terms of you thinking of a race here. We've got three more sermons today, and then two more weeks, and then we are through the book of Revelation. A reminder then we are uh, going to do a six part series on prayer, and then we'll be in Advent uh, in December, and then we jump into the book of Judges uh, beginning in the new year. So we look forward to that. We got three more here. We covered this passage last week, if you remember. But I I said we'll be uh, two weeks in this passage. Let's begin this morning with a little bit of trivia. Uh, If who can remember for the children's classes what the hymn of the month is? Amazing Grace. That is correct. Uh, Does anybody remember who authored Amazing Grace? John Newton, yeah, that's right. Um, Does anybody remember, or maybe maybe, I wasn't here when when it was shared, does anybody know some of the John Newton's vocations? Yeah, he was a slave trader in his younger years, converted, and then became a pastor. And he pastored for a number of years. And one of the men that he eventually mentored was a man named William Wilberforce, who you may have heard the story of. There was a recent movie done by him. He was uh, a British politician and helped to end British uh, slave trade. So the slave trader come pastor actually had a hand then uh, through one of the men he was mentoring in helping to end slave trade. So a wonderful story, a wonderful hymn. Uh, There's a quote that he has that I've always loved, and it goes like this. He said... I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But I am not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. I've always loved that quote because he's keeping his, his eyes on the past and the future. He looks at himself and he's like, good night, I'm not what I should be. I mean, when I read scripture, it seems clear I should be farther along. I'm, I'm not what I want to be. I, I want to be much farther along, growing in grace. I, I wish I was much farther along after all these years. And yet, then he also looks forward and says, I'm, I'm not that what I will be or what we'll, we will see one day, but I'm also not what I used to be. Like, God is doing a work in me, which, if you're a follower of Christ, that should be hugely encouraging for us, that we're not what we used to be, even though we're not what we want to be, because God's grace is, is moving us along. Um, and so I, 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 I always, I've always liked that for the Christian life, keeping your eyes on the past and the future. Uh, John, in that quote, though, seems to, seems to have the idea, like the authors of Scripture, that keeping our sights on what we hope to be actually stirs up faith and stirs up patient endurance. Uh, that's the way the authors of scripture is right they, they keep pointing forward to what will come, what we will see, what we will be, what we won't be like anymore and that is actually supposed to help us to run the race so, so, somewhat like you know uh, if you think of a mu- musician planning for uh, they're their having the chance to Maybe make it uh, through this competition and, and play at this certain venue or sing at this certain venue. And they're going to undergo weeks and months of training, right? And they're going to forego a lot of things. They're going to have days where they don't want to practice, but they're going to practice anyways because they keep their mind on what's to come and what will be. And suddenly what they're missing, you know, because of they're not going out with their friends on this night or they're, they're not doing A, B, and C or they're spending money to pay for a coach or whatever it is, this hardship that they're encountering is all worth it because that's ahead, right? Or you see that in athletics and in many places in life. That's the way these passages are meant to stir us. Throughout the book of Revelation, we've been watching a lot uh, those, those recapitulation scenes from chapter 4, 1 all the way to uh, the end of 16, of going from the ascension of Jesus all the way to the end. And keep going back and forth. At the end of the book, 17:1 and following, he then pauses and slows down on the very end. First, he shows us in 17.1 and following the judgment of the prostitute. She's burned. The judgment of the beast, thrown into the lake of fire, the judgment of the serpent, the dragon, thrown into the lake of fire, the judgment of all who have the mark of the beast, thrown into the lake of fire, and suddenly from twenty one nine on we have we have no more word about the lake of fire. It's now focusing all entirely on the bride. And if you remember last week we talked about who who is this bride? That was the first question we asked, and we saw that the bride is not a person it's a it's a people and that's why John is told first in twenty one nine that the, the angel's going to show him the bride and he gets taken to a place and he sees a city. He doesn't see a bride, he sees a whole city because the bride is a people and remember on the gates is written the names of the, old, the tribes of the, the Old Testament, the, the sons of Israel on the gates, representing the Old Testament saints on the foundations of the walls, are written the, the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, representing the New Testament saints. It's all the people of God is who this bride is uh, through the ages. Because later in, in the chapter, we hear that the nations all come, all the Gentiles who follow Jesus. And he tells us right at the end of chapter 21, it's everyone whose name is written in the lambs book of life so this bride that we're looking at is actually a people we could sum it up and say it's the church right it's God's people the other thing we saw we asked the question uh well what what about these images what are these images uh trying to communicate on the very foundational level and if you remember we were trying to make the case that is simply trying to tell us that God's people are in God's presence in the very end right this is the very simple message all throughout all these images, we, we, you could break up the passage as saying, first we're shown the city, then we're shown the new temple, then we're shown the new garden. But at the very base, all of it is communicating God's presence. Remember the city? Uh, again, we covered this last week. It's measured. Remember how far it was? It was 12,000 stadia, one way, the, the length, the width, and the height. Remember, it's not just about this big number. It's, if you remember, uh, that length is from this building right here all the way to Fort Myers, Florida, almost exactly, six miles uh, shorter. Right, so this is, a, this is a massive city, long, massive city-wide, massive city-high. But the point there is it's a perfect cube, and there's only one other cube in all of Scripture. And you remember where that was? It was in the Holy of Holies. The tabernacle and the temple, they have the outer courts, and then you you come into the holy place where only the priests go every day to to keep the lamp lit, the menorah, the lampstand. you got the showbread and the, uh, uh, the altar of incense. And then behind that curtain is the Holy of Holies. That is the unique dwelling place of God between the cherubim above the Ark of the Covenant. And so what John is communicating or being communicated by the angel is being demonstrated that the whole city is the very holy of holies. Where God's people are in in the end, this massive city is the very dwelling place of God. And of course he goes on to then tell us the very throne of God is right in the middle of the city and we see God face to face. So that's the very basic message from uh, this whole section is God's people are in God's presence in the end. Where we ended last week, we were asking the question, okay, so what about these, these particular details, right? Why, he, he could have just simply said God's people will be in God's presence. That, 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 that would make sense. But he uses this imagery and why this particular imagery? What's he trying to conjure up for us? What is is he trying to communicate to us with this very imagery? We answered uh, the first part of it and we'll cover the second two today. The first one uh, was to demonstrate that in the end, God's people will be revealed as cherished in God's presence. And so we were answering that with with two, two main things here. One, just how incredibly adorned the city is. If you remember how, how expensive a pearl is in our day, just a small little pearl, hundred million million, two foot by one foot, I think it was. Even that one single gate is made out of single, uh, a pearl in this, in this city. Everything is gold. The streets that you walk on are gold. All these fancy jewels. The builder of this city spared no expense. Is, is the imagery, right? Because he loves the bride. He will spend everything for the bride. He will make it a beautiful place for her because he's crazy about her. Uh, but also just this imagery of bride. Like God is trying to communicate to his people that I love you the way a good husband does. Now, a lot of us know bad relationships and a lot of us know decent relationships. But even the best relationships are broken. But we all know what a perfect husband should be like right and and how he should be just crazy about the wife just adore her cherish her that's what's being communicated in this image of a bride but two more here we'll cover today uh, of what these details are trying to communicate uh, about God's people in God's presence what are they supposed to experience or what is what is he trying to communicate The first one is uh, the security of God's people. So in the end, God's people will be revealed as cherished and secure. I'm not going to read the first two paragraphs uh, again today. We read it twice last week. I just want to show these two uh, points where you see this. Verse 12, uh, he's describing the city. It had a great high wall. Now, if you just pause there for a second and just think about uh, the culture this has been being written to, walls around a city were incredibly important in that culture, right? Walls meant security. You, you know, there's a, a whole book in our Bible that is devoted to talking about God's people building a wall so that it's safe, right? In the book of Nehemiah, Ezra had gone back to rebuild the temple after the exile into Babylon and the people are coming back. Uh, into Jerusalem. They build the temple, but it's not safe. And that's what Nehemiah is so distraught over, that they need a wall. There needs to be security around the city, because without a wall, the, the city is very vulnerable, right? And so just even just for the first listeners, they hear that there's this great high wall around the city. It's meant to conjure up some, some form of security. And then if you go on in verse 12, uh, it has 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. These, these are bodyguards. right? Now, now, throughout Scripture, sometimes, it seems, angels show up and you don't, they don't even know that they're angels, right? I mean, you think of Abraham at first when he's those two angels. He comes and meets them out, out by the tree. Uh, the book of uh, Hebrews tells us that some people entertained angels without even knowing it, right? But other times in Scripture, uh, and in particular in this book, when angels show up, uh, they're, they're generally not just like, well, oh, I didn't even know you were an angel. Like, it's, it's quite clear. And remember, John even, indeed, bows down to worship one of these angels a couple chapters ago just because of the, the glorious uh, view of him, this, this bright, shining light. So this, these angels, when, in this context, in this book, as you hear, oh, there's bodyguards at the gates, Don't think like Kirk is the bodyguard. I mean, think like, think, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) Think like, I mean, Hulk Hogan, like, times a lot, right? I mean, this is just massive. Like, ooh, okay, like, these gates are guarded. We're safe. Nobody's getting through. Uh, And then, of course, you get down to verse 17, and he, he tries to sort of, Explode the imagination for the first listeners he says he also measured its wall hundred forty four cubits by human measurement, which it's also an angel's measurement so 144 cubits is uh, a cubit is about 18 inches so you're talking 216 feet is the image of this wall Now that uh, most likely is talking about how tall it is uh, and how wide it is. Right, so this, this is intentionally meant to be like no other wall these that these this audience had ever seen. It's like no other wall that we've seen through all the years. Uh, the Great Wall of China uh, on average is in terms of height is average averages 20 to 23 feet high. Um, at, at the highest point is 46 feet. So you're you're talking a wall at least five times the highest part of the Great Wall of China. This this is a massive, massive wall, right? It's not like you're going to get a running start and maybe pull vault over it or something. You cannot get over this wall. This is a a tall wall. Uh, But even the Great Wall of China, which you've seen pictures of, you know, great hordes of people walking on it, uh, where you could drive cars right down it, uh, it averages 13 to 16 feet wide, uh, as you go along, it's the average width. Uh, at the widest place, it's 55 feet. Okay, which, that, that's a huge wall. I mean, to be 50, 55 feet wide, uh, we're talking this wall in the passage is 216 feet wide, right? Now, the, 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 the width of a wall, the thickness of a wall, helps determine how strong that wall is for, you know, people trying to bash through it, right? You take some sort of a heavy object and try to ram it through or some chariots and something. You're trying to burst through the wall, right? Um, 216-foot-thick wall, uh, I mean, you're not driving tanks through that thing, not by a long shot, let alone back in their day uh, where they have much smaller uh, equipment trying to go through a wall. So I think, you know, if John were trying to communicate this reality to us, um, given now that we have tanks, he, he probably would have enlarged this, right? It probably would be a 400 to 500 foot wall. So you just go, that, that thing, it, there's no way getting through that. This is like some otherworldly security that's trying to be communicated. Like it's meant, it's meant to force you to go, what? Like that's incredibly safe for the people of God. Now, sometimes it's even harder for us to think about this because we place so much time and effort on making sure our world is safe, right? I mean, I'm guessing you all locked your doors today. You probably locked your car door when you came in. I think those doors right there are actually locked during the service, right? So nobody can get in. You locked your house. You probably locked it at night. You probably have car insurance, you have medical insurance. We spend so much time, so much effort, so much money to try to keep our world safe, right? There's, there's nothing wrong with that, but, but we do. Now, the scary thing about it is we know deep down that no, no matter how much we spend, something could still break through, right? I mean, what if I told you that there's just an article that they said they, find, they have created a ship That cannot be sunk. Like the cynic in you just goes, yeah, we've heard that before. (laughs) Right? Or they actually found a way to make buildings that nothing can take it down. Yep. Sure. Right? All it takes is something. They'll make some sort of a bomb big enough. Or eventually there will be an earthquake strong enough to bring it down. Like we just know there's this cynic in us because this is this is so far out of our world. We know that anywhere we go, we are not safe. The world is not safe. This is a broken and cursed world. There's just it's just simply not a reality here. Right? We know that we cannot find this here. But what what if it what if this is true? Like, what if God is really trying to paint a picture that He there is a place that he has in store for us, that we actually will not, f- like if you go to bed tonight and you forget whether or not you locked your doors, I know some of you probably do this. You're like, did I lock the door? And what do you, what do you oh, I don't know. Do you feel safe just laying in bed? No, most, most of you probably get up and go check, right? There will be a day where you would be like, of course I didn't lock my not Why would I even think of that? Like you will be utterly, totally safe and secure. Like what if that's true? It really is meant to boggle the mind and do something inside of us and say, I want I want to be there. I want I want to experience that. There's hardly a day that goes by that we ever experience just a deep sense of safety here. So what if it was true, um, I, you know, this otherworldly security? I think one myth we at least just need to wrestle with is that is not, it is otherworldly. It is not going to happen here. Like we should stop trying to assume we will make this world safe. It's not going to happen. The safety that's being communicated in this passage is for another world. It's not going to happen here. In fact, throughout the book, um, most of the time the church is talked about, on earth, it's never in safety. It's actually being attacked most of the time. And we're experiencing all sorts of hardships. So we should, we should not expect any safety here. That's for another world. But also, if you think about Jesus, when he talked about another world, you remember what he said. Do not store up treasures on earth where moth and rust, they will, break in, uh, they will destroy, and where thieves will break in and steal here. No, 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 don't store up treasure here. Swore up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he adds, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now I think what he's doing with that phrase is, one, he's placing the treasure and the heart in the same place. You put your treasure somewhere, your heart's going to follow. But he's actually trying to guard us. Because here's the reality. If we put all our hope in keeping our world safe or having something like that we really want on this earth and we feel like we need to have it. Jesus says if you do that you're going to be crushed. If if your heart's here your world is going to go like this constantly because you know you know moth will break in or moth will will destroy and thieves will break in and steal. That's that is life on this fallen world. Right? You may find something that you're very successful at but eventually you will not be It will run out. And so he says, no. Place all of your hope, all of your security, all of your treasure somewhere else. Live for another world. Don't live for safety here. Risk it and live for another world. Because then, when your heart's there, it's untouchable. The hardships of this life cannot touch that treasure, cannot touch that heart. So on this earth, we may not be safe, but we'll be free, right? If we actually place our hope in the place where it's fully secure. And, you know, I, I, I would just encourage you younger folks, you know, in your 20s, uh, 20s, 25, 30, like this, this is a prime time to do the work of saying, you know what, I'm going to work to make sure I'm preparing my heart to store up treasure there. Because I in my experience, the the more you you know, if 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 God calls you to have a family, get married, have kids, the temptation to, to secure your world only grows. It only grows because there's more to live for, there's more to watch out, there's more to keep safe. And so don't think, oh, yeah, when I'm older, I'll, I'll, I'll really be able to hunker down and really get my, my sights right. Right now, I need to work on building my career or something. No, I think the, some of the greatest work you can do in your own heart is say, you know what? I'm not going to live for this world. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to spend all my time and my resources and my dreams here because all this is fading. I'm, I'm living for another world, and I'm willing to risk it for the cause of Christ. And I think for those of us who who have young kids, like this is the message we want to be sending to our kids as they grow up. We don't live for this world. Like this world is passing away. This place is, we should expect hardship here. That's what we take, and we live for a secure world. And then, if our kids would grasp that message by the power of the Spirit of God, and as they hold on to that and say, some of them, I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if some of them from our congregation say, you know what, I'm going to live that out in a dangerous place and take the gospel there. I'm willing to do that because I'm not living for this world. I mean, that's not the only way to live risky for Christ, but that's one way. And then we want to be parents who hold their children with open hands and say, yep, that's right. I won't be able to provide you any safety on this side of the world. But God will take care of you, and I'll see you on the other side, right? That's the way we want to live. So that's the, the second thing I see here is, is is painting the picture of an absolute secure church, and then third, uh, let me read verses twenty two to the where TJ read, and uh, you know I I would say it like this: uh, in the end, God's people will, will be revealed as cherished, secure. And restored to Eden like status, or you might say to better than Eden status. So let's read these two paragraphs again and just pay attention to the links to Eden, the original garden. And I will talk through that. Verse 22 And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun, no need of moon to shine on it, because the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. They will need no lamp, the light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. All right, so here I see really what he was trying to communicate uh, to us is that we will be restored to better than Eden status. So there's all these allusions back to what the atmosphere was like in Eden. What, what was the experience for Adam and Eve in the original garden? So first you see that, that river uh, uh, the water of life. This is uh, connecting both with Ezekiel as he promises this new temple. Uh, There's water running through it and gives life to everything. Uh, but also, if you remember the garden, there was, there was a river flowing through it and then it split into these uh, four parts. Uh, but most notably, I'm sure you picked it up, is verse 2 in chapter 22. The tree of life. The tree of life is there. Now, remember, the tree of life was in the garden, Uh, They were uh, allowed to eat from the tree of life. Uh, After they sinned in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, if you remember what happened, they were kicked out of the garden. There was placed an angel at the gate. So another connection here, right? An angel at the gate. Remember, if if you remember, these cherubim had these flaming swords. And you remember why they had the swords, the text tells us? So that they could not come in and eat from that tree of life. Adam and Eve needed to be guarded from that tree of life. And from that point on in chapter 3, tree of life is gone throughout the rest of scripture. And it shows up a couple times, four times in the book of Proverbs. But not as an actual physical tree. Only as if like allusions back to the place, to that tree that could give you life. The symbol of life in God's presence. Where he'll say something like, uh, I think it's a a soft tongue is like a tree of life. It's just just using it as imagery. But the actual tree of life is never heard from again in scripture. And really, uh, if you think about the top and tail of, of scripture, this is one of the key themes here. Is that how... We get kicked out of the garden. How are we going to get back in that garden where the tree of life is that represents living with God, life with God, where we receive true life indeed? Remember, top and tail, you know, the, the beginning and end of, of a book or a movie are always the, the most important parts. You know, like those, those are the parts of a movie that you never get up and go to the bathroom, right? Because you would be super annoying to watch the movie with. If you, if you go to the bathroom at the beginning, and then come back, the, the whole rest of the time, you're going to be asking people, like, what's that about? What? what what's that? Because you miss kind of the, the the tension moment, right? The plot. And if you go at the end, well, you're never going to hear the end of the story, right? You don't go to the bathroom at the end of the movie. So that the beginning and the end of the scripture are very key to just, like, read the first couple chapters, read the, end, the last couple chapters, and then make these connections. The whole rest of the Bible after Genesis 3, is trying to answer that problem. How do we get back into God's presence? And the tree of life is a symbol there of being in God's presence. Now, those cherubim in the garden were meant to keep us from getting back in or Adam and Eve from getting back in to eat from the tree of life. Now, they're there to keep all evil out. Right? We are actually now in the garden at the end. They are keeping all evil out. We're not the ones being kept out. But we are the ones inside. And did you notice, actually, in verse uh, 12, no, where, where is it? Um, the gates. The gates are open. yeah, verse 25, its gates will never be shut by day. So now the gates aren't even shut. The angels are still there guarding it, but there's no need to shut the gate anymore. Because really, uh, in, the, in the original garden, there was... Uh, there was the ability for an evil serpent to sneak in, remember? And that's what started this whole thing. But in this garden, there's not even a need to, to close the gate. Now, again, in the ancient world, the gate is, you, you close the gate at night because that meant the s- city was secure. Now, in the imagery, there's no, there's no light. Uh, there's no need for sun. There's no, I'm sorry, there's no night. So there's no need to close the gate. Because all evil is totally kept out, unlike the original garden. Uh, And then, of course, you have uh, God, chapter 3 of Genesis, walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Uh, Here you have the very throne of God right in the garden. Uh, And isn't it interesting why they have no need of sun or moon? Now that's, you know, there's a lot of debate about what's going on there. Um, Will there not actually be a sun or be a moon? I, you know, I, I, I don't know. This, again, this is apocalyptic literature. It's an imagery. But it's trying to communicate something. And I think it's trying to communicate that, that the brightness and the glory that we receive from the sun, right? You got up this morning and you could see outside. Even if the sun's not up, it lets off so much light that we can come out and we can see. It will be so dim compared to the glory of God. Right, so, the, throughout Scripture, you have this, these images of God's glory being bright. Think you of Moses going into the presence of God. What happens when he comes out? His face is glowing because he was in the presence of God, so they had to put a veil over him because the people were terrified. Uh, that, that seems to be the imagery. So, uh, in, in uh, my garage, we have you know, a garage door opener, and it, it's got a light that comes on. Right Now, I used to use that light for, to be able to see, because uh, that was like, it's, it's a pretty good light. Well, I think a year and a half ago or so, I installed these like really nice garage lights. I mean, they're actually inexpensive, but they're, they're really bright. They have these really nice lights on them. And you, you put those up there. You, if I turn on the light, uh, those lights, uh, and I turn on, the, like, they're, they shine so bright that when I turn on the garage door opener light, it does nothing. It turns on, but it doesn't provide any extra light because there's no extra light needed. These, these two lights are doing so much work. Uh, so, at very least, that would be sort of the idea is God's glory will be there. We will see Him so clearly, so powerfully, that He will provide all the light we need. And whether or not there's sun or moon, who cares? Because they, they can't add anything to His glory because God's light will be seen. So it seems she's trying to paint this picture that we're going back to the garden, but we're not going back to that garden. That garden was painting a picture of something by far better. It's going to be so much better than that garden that we want to get to the new Eden. Can you imagine that there really will be a day, according to this passage, when the curse will be no more? You will not find any evidence of the curse. You won't find it in yourself like you, You'll never have to go to someone and apologize for the sharp words you said to them. You'll never be embarrassed about the lustful thought you had. You'll never be ashamed about how slothful you were this week. I mean, this, this will be something, right? You'll never be frustrated by the mixed, mixed bag of, of good and bad that you have inside, Right? Uh, you'll never actually have a relationship that needs mending or maybe ends. Like, you'll never have to deal with conflict ever again. You'll never get word of another school shooting or some unsolved mystery. You'll never hear word about some tsunami that's destroyed a city or hurricanes. You'll never hear of a worldwide pandemic again. Like, all evidence of this broken world and our broken selves will be gone. Did you notice that twice in this image? He, he, he makes clear what's not there. Everything detestable is not there. Everything accursed is not there. That will be unbelievable. I mean, that is very, very hard to imagine. I mean, What are you most excited about? to get to the new creation? Like, if you try to imagine what that will be like, what excites you most about that? I'm sure we could have different answers. You know, I think one of the things I am most excited about, I mean, the two things that first popped in my head, like not struggling with anxiety and doubt, fear of the future, like that, that will be glorious. To not have those thoughts. And even the, the temptation to, 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 to have those fears. That would be, be very nice. Uh, if I think all the hours and uh, just emotional like time I've spent on that, that would be nice to be freed from that. But I think I'm probably most excited about not having this, this mixed motives in me. Where I can, as a, as a child of God, with the Spirit of God in me, have some pure motives at times. Like, or I just simply want to do this because I love God. I want to love his people. I want to serve someone. And yet, I always have the shadow motive coming in that also wants to say, yeah, but I also want them to thank me and recognize me and think that I'm good. I mean, it's, hor- it's horrifying. You can pray in front of people and be more concerned about what other people are thinking about your prayer. You been there? I mean, that, that's just a, we're a bag of mixed motives. And one day that won't, will not be. I mean, there can be parts of me that just genuinely wants to open up the scriptures, wants to proclaim the truth just faithfully to build up God's people. And then this other part of me that says, and I want people to say how great I am. I want people to think this is a great sermon. I want them to tell me that afterwards. I mean, it's just, it's just horrifying. But one day, well, like one day you'll be able to do the things that you love for the glory of God and not have some shadow mixed motive anymore. Wow, that be glorious. That is freedom, too. That is absolute freedom that we will experience. We will actually do what we were designed to do, to live to the glory of God, rather than try to build up our own kingdom. The question, as I had, as I reflected on this uh, passage, was, why is this not music to my soul? I mean, I can read this a hundred times, and every once in a while, it's like, wow, that's good. But most of the time, it's like, oh, yeah, okay. Okay. Like how is this not music? How is this not the greatest thing in the world to think about? To actually living for the glory of God and experiencing him, seeing him face to face, not having the the, the anything of the curse around me anymore. How is that not music to my soul? Here's five really quick reasons, a minute each. One, I I, I think I just don't keep it before me enough. I don't imagine it enough. Now part of this might be because like the way my brain's more incredibly getting designed by the culture in terms of Facebook, quick videos. I just I'm losing the ability to sit and imagine because I think to actually imagine you have to sit, you have to think, and we're losing that ability to just sit and meditate on God and being with God. But also, I you know I th- I think I mean it's just a generalization here. Um, I think. As I've experienced, I think the older generation tends to think about this more. And maybe not. Not all older generation doesn't. Um, but I think the ones that I've talked to at times, those who are walking with God, actually do think about this quite a bit. You know, they've, they've seen the ups and downs of the world. They know that this world can't, like, provide us with what we want. They, they've experienced, they're experiencing pain in their body. They're looking forward to, for the curse to be gone. They're looking forward to this day, and they long for it more and more and more. And if that's you, I just want to say, like, there's a lot of young people around here. We need to hear your voice, and I would invite you, keep pouring that on to us. Preach that message to us in your small groups. Point the young people to this picture. We need to hear that voice from you. We need to see it, Uh, older folks living faithfully and saying, yes, but I'm living for the new city. I'm living for the new Jerusalem, not this one. What a great way you can help us in that. Uh, second, why I don't think this is music, um, I think just partially because it's, it is so otherworldly. It's just I, my, my, my brain can only go so far, right? Now, so take, for example, if you have a five-year-old and they're playing in the, like, that little plastic pool outside in the backyard, right, two feet tall, and they think it's great. Like they're running and around, jumping. They even use their little slide, you know, the little plastic slide, and they're putting it in the pool. You know, they just think this is the best pool ever. And you're like, okay, um, no, we're not playing in the pool today, because we're going somewhere else. We're going to Noah's Ark. Now they've never heard of Noah's Ark. They've never seen it, and so you try to try to start explaining it to them. Well, like, no, it's going to be really cool. I know we got to drive two hours there, but it's like, this is going to be really awesome. And you're going to be like this wave pool and there's going to be some big slides. And they're like, no, nah, like this, this pool fine. Right. They just don't have the category. And plus it is so new and fresh. It's kind of scary. Like what if the waves are too big? They just, they have a hard time having a conceptual idea of it. So they'd rather just settle for this. All right. And so I think that happens to me. It's just so otherworldly. Uh, I, at times, some of us may be here, and, and uh, one of the reasons might be because we've experienced so much pain in the world that it's just hard, it's just hard to imagine it be, being gone. Like, I am I'm an incredibly, uh, what do they call the, the man colds, right? Like, I am an incredible baby when, I, when I'm sick. And I get just a couple hours in, and I, just, I cannot even conceptualize this ever being gone. And I just sit and whine <laughs> the whole time. Like over just a small cold, it's sad. Like, but it's possible that we've experienced so much pain, or you know, some of us, some of you folks, have experienced incredible pain through life, and it's hard to imagine a world so different. Uh, and that would that would, that would certainly be true for some. Uh, for others, it might be that we've experienced so much pleasure that that world's really not a, not that great. I mean, I have a lot of things here. I like my world here. That, that world's good, but it doesn't really cause this imagination to spring up and long for the kingdom because I just really love this. I love my family. I love my kids. I love my job. I'm good here. And actually, the thought of leaving this world and going to that one is not really preferred right now. It could be numerous of us in this room today. Uh, And last, I would say sometimes we just, when we try to think about being confident that we're actually allowed to go to that place, it's because we look too much, we we get afraid because we start looking at our own performance. Have I done enough to make it? Am I good enough to make it? And I hope you hear that and you say, you know what, I've probably answered that question, but the answer is no. I have not done enough and I'm not good enough to make it, but Christ has. Christ has secured that place for me. And that is to where I will look. I will make it to the city, not because of me, but because of what Christ has done in his death and resurrection for sinners like me, for all who trust in him. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, we recall that. We receive this promise from God that he's preparing a place for us. We say, yes, I take it. I hold it. I believe it. Not because of me, but because of the promise of Christ and him dying in my place so if you're a follower of christ here this morning we invite you to partake of the lord's supper with us receive god's promise of preparing a place for us Uh, as drew said this is not about perfection but about direction if you're striving to live in a repentant faith uh, in christ the table is open if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of jesus or you're living in unrepentant sin uh, we ask that you not partake the scriptures say that it would not be good for your soul uh, at this time. So uh, remember we'll come come through the inner part of the aisle, walk up, grab the elements and uh, head back. Uh, you can sing while we come forward and-